So I uh, promised two weeks ago that this week we'd talk about the spiritual powers and authorities and all that stuff in Ephesians. And then I was, uh, I, got, I, got, I got dressed up so that you would, you know, hear me well. And then I was walking to my car and my belt went, boosh, just popped, just exploded. I blew a tire around the waist. And the, the young adult class said, just, it looks worse tucked in without a belt. So pull it out and figure it out. So here I am. And it's funny, is I, I would be, I might be tempted to be like, see, the devil doesn't want me talking about it. But that's nonsense. I mean, that's like, what, like, I'm going to pop open and I'm gonna be like, oh, no, I can't preach what I was going to preach. Um, so we're still going to talk about it. Even though my shirt's untucked, you'll be fine. Um, we, but there are these little passages in Ephesians, and I want to get straight to it because we've got we've got a, got a lot to um, get through. But I want you to just pay attention, and I'll try to be um, I'll try to be exuberant enough that you you don't want to go to sleep. Okay. So, but there's there's a lot to get to. But there's these three passages in Ephesians that talk like this. Uh, this one says he exerted he exerted when he raised Christ this power that he has he exerted this power when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly realms far above all rule and authority power and dominion and every name that is invoked not only in the present age but also in the one to come then in Ephesians three he says his intent was that now through the church. The manifold or multifaceted is probably, we read manifold and we just say manifold. We don't know what it means. It's just multifaceted wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly realms. And then again in Ephesians 6, for our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of dark, uh, of this dark world and against the spiritual forces and evil in the heavenly realms realms okay so there's there's two there's two mistakes we can make here actually there's three but we're going to get to the third one later there's two out of the gate that we could make we either could get just just say well that's what they thought and like that doesn't that doesn't that's not real now there's no there's no um there's no evil and there's no uh, spiritual forces against us. None of that. I think that would be a serious mistake. Another mistake we could make is just get obsessed with it. Just give this world most of our attention. Uh, this is C.S. Lewis's argument in, in the introduction. If you've never read The Screwtape Letters, it's an excellent book to read twice because the first time through, you're not going to get it all the way. But read it again. Uh, Screwtape Letters is an excellent book. And in the introduction, he says that the two mistakes we make about the spiritual world, about, about evil, spiritual evil, is that one, it doesn't exist, and two, it's the most important thing. You get obsessed with it. So I kind of grew up in... Um, in, in the, you know, I talk about faults as ditches, you know, I was in the ditch of this, and I don't know what to do with this, so it doesn't really, I'm not even going to pay attention to it. The other ditch is paying attention to it nonstop. So I don't want to hop out of one ditch and run to the other. 
Because as even though you're as far away as possible from the ditch you grew up in, you're still in a ditch, right? So what I want, what I, what I set out to do over the last um, probably about three weeks, uh, maybe a month, is to dive into this and decide. Uh, it's got, it's got to meet two standards. Two standards. One. Obviously, it has to make sense. When it, whatever I come to understand as these rulers, powers, and authorities, it has to make sense within the context of Ephesians. Right? He can't be used, making an argument in Ephesians and then make a tangent that doesn't really make sense to the flow of the letter. And that's typically what you look at when you're, when you're reading something and you say, I'm not sure what this is. What you often do is just go backward in the letter to figure out, well, what in the world is he talking about? He might have, he might have referenced this earlier, and it will explain what he's talking about now. He doesn't do that. Now, he does reference it in, um, in, he references it in 1 and 3 and in 6, so we can take 6 and we can run back and look at 3 and 1 and see what he's get, gathering and what he's getting at. And we'll do that when we get to chapter 6. But if, it doesn't, if, if he doesn't define it in Ephesians, then I've got to ask myself this. Not what does this mean? Because sometimes I can, I can we know demons... We know spiritual evil because we've watched movies. We've read books. Some of you have read everything Stephen King has ever written. And you know that you can't grow up in a, with a group of friends and grow closer together without being chased by something evil. Stephen King's thing. Make, make friends. Don't die. That's the whole book. Every book. But we've seen all of that stuff, and sometimes that creeps in to my brain, and I will just take, take the words on the page and say, I don't know what this is, but I have a category for it in my brain, and it looks like, uh, like something with horns and a pokey tail and a trident. It looks like Something we've always seen in art. And also, it looks like something that is just, just wants to do me harm. In a way where it's making me sick, or it's, um, or it's, it's hurting my paycheck, or it's giving, blowing out my tire, or popping my belt, or like whatever. Whatever happened, we can say, well, that's evil, and it, we can make it very individualistic, just like we make the gospel very individualistic. But the best way to go about this, 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 this has been something that's, uh, that hasn't failed me very often, is to ask this question. What did Paul mean when Paul said these words? Not what do these words mean when he says spiritual powers and authorities or, or in, this, in the heavenly places. When, not just what do those words mean because then I will, I will connect those dots on my own. I can do that. But to do the hard work of figuring out 
what does Paul mean when he says spiritual powers and authorities in the heavenly places? What does that mean? Now, I'm going to go back and we're going to look at these one more time and I'm going to show you um, all three of them are, are slightly different, but I'm not going to get caught up in that because sometimes we'll, we'll read... We'll read things and we'll say, he exerted them when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly realms far above all the rule and authority, power and dominion. And we'll go, okay, what's rule? What's, what's power? What's authority? What's dominion? And we'll like list them. But Paul, the way Paul writes, if you like read 1st of Philippians 3, Paul says, uh, watch out for those dogs, those mutilators of those flesh, those men who do evil. He's not listing three different types of things. He's referencing, he's saying watch out for all of those types of one thing. And so when Paul gives these lists, it's rarely bulleted but grouped. So here it's the rule and authority and power and dominion. Um, in Ephesians 3, it's, uh, it's his intent was to, for the church to make known the manifold wisdom of God should be made, this should be made known to, it's just rulers and authorities. And then in Ephesians 6, it's for our struggles not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers and the authorities and the powers of this dark world and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. But you notice, and you probably already noticed this, all three of them give us a place to start. In the heavenly and we don't, we do not have the same instincts that the first century writers had, or the first century hearers had, whenever Paul talks about this. But hopefully by the time the morning is over, you'll kind of get it. And it all boils down to what you, what you see when you look at the stars. There's a great scene in... Um, there's a wonderful drama called The Lion King. And I haven't seen the live action one. I don't know if this scene's in the live action one. But in the cartoon, uh, after, the, after Simba and Timon and Pumbaa have been Hakuna matata in, they all lay, they're all laying down and looking up at the stars. And Pumbaa says, Timon! What are those lights in the sky? And Timon says, oh, those are, those are butterflies. Or fireflies that have been caught in that big dark thing. And, and Pumbaa says, I always thought that they were big balls of gas. And Timon says, Pumbaa, with you everything's gas. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and then Simba says, Somebody once told me, and he's referencing his father at this point, he says, someone once told me they represented the kings of old and that they watched over us. What Pumon, what, uh, Pumon, Pumon, what Pumba, what Pumba thinks is what we think. And I was reading a theologian, a uh, theologian, no, I wasn't reading, I was listening to a theologian about this, and he said, uh, someone said, well, we know they're, they're big balls of gas, burning gas. And the theologian said, well, we've never been to one. 
which is a very theologian thing to say. But that's the modern understanding of when we look at the stars. It's just light. That's all it is. But the first century person, and far beyond that and far after that, the first century person believed that when they looked at the sky, they saw the gods. And you, you know this now because we see con what, what they have pieced together as constellations they, this, all of these gods, these spiritual beings in the sky, represent one of the gods or gods, and the Hebrew word is Elohim. Now, Elohim in the Old Testament most often refers to the god we worship, but there, a lot of times it also refers to just a spiritual being. Take, for example, when Saul um, is trying to figure out something um, in secret. So he goes to the witch of Endor, is, which is where the Ewoks live. <laughs> he goes to the, to the witch of Endor, and he, um, he, he asks her. He goes in disguise because Saul had said, if you practice witchcraft, then, then you're going to get killed. And so he goes to her, and he says, um, I need you to summon somebody for me. And the woman's the, the witch says, uh, no, I can't do that because Saul has decreed. She goes, nothing. He said, nothing will harm you. So she, she, she summons Samuel. And when she sees Samuel, she declares, ah, I see before me a heavenly being. The word there is Elohim. I see before me a God. It's the same word used in the beginning of the Bible. Bereshit bara Elohim. The in the beginning God. And so there's this, there's there, yes, that does often refer to God. But throughout scripture, it sometimes refers to what that means is just a spiritual being. Now, they will tag on things to our God, and they'll say um, the God of gods, the, uh, the Lord God, or Yahweh, Elohim. But the way they thought of the gods in space was that most of them were just spiritual beings that did certain things. There were some spiritual beings that defied the others. There were some that went against the grain, that fought the power of the man. And they couldn't be predicted. There was one in particular that was the morning star. It was the one that stood the longest against the face of the sun. And all of these wandering lights, the Greek for wandering light is planetos, all of these wandering lights were assigned these rebel gods, these, uh, I don't know, like Mars and Venus. And so when they looked at this, the heavenly places, they weren't, just, they weren't just looking at light. They were looking at, that's the world of the gods. That's how they saw it. And so when he says, 
the spiritual powers in the heavenly places, the authorities, the rulers in the heavenly places. He's talking about spiritual beings that exist up that existed up there and are rooting against us. And there's also this belief. This is the second one. And I know the first one's hard. The second one's harder to get, get, get your head around. But here we go. They also believed God had a staff. Not staff. A staff. Um, a heavenly council. The host of heaven, they would say. The ar- host of heaven means the army, the, the staff of heaven. Which makes sense. This is the way they believed Yahweh had a host around him and he would talk to these guys. Let's just go to 1 Kings 22. So there's this really bad king who wants to go to war and he wants to find out if he should go to war. And uh, it's Ahab. And he, he, he's checking all these prophets and he said, well, go ask the prophet who never says anything nice about me. And they get to him and he says, oh yeah, he should go to war. He said, no, be honest. So he continued. Micaiah continued, Therefore, hear the word of the Lord. I saw the Lord sitting on his throne, and all the multitudes of heaven, all the hosts of heaven, standing around him on his right and on his left. And the Lord said, Who will entice Ahab into attacking Ramoth Gilead and going to his death there? One suggested this and another that. Finally, a spirit came forward, stood before the Lord, stood before Yahweh, and said, I will entice him. By what means, the Lord asked. Wow. I will go. Is this tripping anyone else out? I will, this is in the Bible. I will go out and be a deceiving spirit in the mouths of his, all of his prophets, he said. You will succeed in enticing him, said the Lord. Go and do it. What? But this is how they viewed it. This is really foreign to us, although it's been in your Bible your whole life. Most of mine. But it's really foreign to us to imagine God with a staff. But it doesn't make it makes sense in their world because the more powerful of a king you are, the more people you have under your employment. Again, I mean this. If we go on to Job one, one day. The angels came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came with them. This is an awful translation of this verse. The the words here literally are, One day the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came with them. Sometimes translators um, are the people who take the original language, can read the original language, and translate it to protect you from what it actually says. It, the sons of Elohim. Now, all right, some of you already got some Genesis 6 bells ringing here, but we're going to get there in a second. Yeah. The, the sons of Elohim. Okay, remember how... Uh, Elijah and Elisha had all these prophets that followed them around. And they were, they were called the sons of the prophets. Remember that? What it means is the class of prophets. 
Um, James and John were called the sons of thunder. Were they actually born of thunder? No. But they personified and they were of the class of thunder. It's a nickname. Some of you know boys that are sons of thunder. Because boys will break stuff. Girls will break you. So whenever they say the sons of Elohim, what, what really worries the translators here and that reason they put angels in this passage is that they get real nervous about like us thinking like, wait, is there a bunch of sons of God? But all they mean is the class of spiritual beings. That's all that phrase means. And they, this was not something foreign to them. They looked up and they saw the spiritual beings and that's where they were, the class of spiritual beings. Genesis 6 says when human beings began to increase in number on the earth and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw the daughters of humans were beautiful and they married any of them they chose. Then the Lord said, my spirit is not, will not contend with humans forever, for they are mortal. Their days will be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterward, when the sons of God went to the daughters of humans and the children and had children by them, they were the heroes of old men of renown. All right, so in our worldview, we read Genesis 6, and it is out of left field. Remember, you remember when you started reading um, the the Bible, like, through, like, the first time you're like, I'm going to start in Genesis 1, and I'm going to get, Genesis 1 through 11 is fantastic. But you get to Genesis 6, and you're like, all right, the flood, I know the story, I've colored this, everyone dies. And, sorry, but all that's in my head is just this new phrase, mass hydrocide, which is, I think, something I just made up, but I needed to share it with you or it was just going to rattle in my brain. So, you get to Genesis 6 and you say, I know, the no I know the Noah story, but to begin Genesis 6, these guys show up that are the sons of God. What are they doing there? And again, it's because when you look at the stars, you just see balls of burning gas. A bunch of Pumbas cannot understand it verse. But you got to remember that the people who wrote these things and read these things, all from, from Genesis 1 all the way to Paul in Ephesians were a bunch of were a bunch of symbols. They were a bunch of people who saw the heavenly realms as a place in which the class of spiritual beings resided. And if you saw the world like that, if that was your worldview, this would not have been a shock to you. Because this isn't, in Genesis 1 through 11, this is not the first place these guys show up. You remember Genesis, uh, we're just going to kind of park in Genesis 1 through 11 here. Do you remember in the beginning... God created the heaven and the earth. The earth, remember what it says about the earth? The earth was formless and void. Tohu la void. 
two problems God has got to figure out. God has got to decide. God, God has to, and he does. The first three days, God deals with the formless. God creates light and dark. God separates the waters above from the waters below. Day two. Day three, God pulls back the, the waters to create dry ground. Formless. Check. Now we have form. It's still void. And the way we always learned it was sun, moon, stars, birds, fish, humans. And he gave, or creatures on the ground and humans, and he gave man, he gave humankind dominion over the creation, over the earth. They gave them authority, which that's something God does. God, who is all-powerful, gives power, gives authority to people. So gave, gave mankind authority. That's how we see the story. But that's not the first place someone's given authority. You go back up to day four, and God puts the lights in the sky, which we go burning balls of gas, but they saw as the heavenly places. And what does God say to those stars, to those lights? You will rule over the seasons, over the day, dark and light. Day and night, the festivals. He gives the stars a job and man a job. And every single Hebrew person hearing that fourth day story would go, oh, he gave, I would say, the heavenly, the spiritual beings, the sons of God, the class of Elohim are in charge of that. And man is in charge of this. And it makes so much more sense if you read from there out. Because Genesis 3, what happens in Genesis 3 that, that gets man in trouble? Now, a lot of you say he ate the fruit. A lot of you say he ate the apple. And, you know, would Church of Christ would jump down your throat about that. It doesn't say it's an apple. And Jonah wasn't swallowed by a whale. You know, that sort of thing. But what, what does the serpent say to them? If you eat this, you will be like the Elohim. It's man trying to become like God. And then we get to Genesis 6, and we've got these gods trying to become like man. We get to Genesis 10, and Genesis 10 is this um, laying out of all the nations. The nations have been divided. He's separated them out, and they're all over the place. And, and, and then we get to Genesis 11, and the writer says, let me tell you how Genesis 10 happened. Genesis 10 is the ending. Genesis 11 is the... Let's jump back a bit. They built this tower, and what were they building the tower to? Heavens. Deuteronomy 32, Moses says that God separated out the nations. And there's a textual variant here, so if you get if you go to your Bible and look this up, it may say to the sons of Israel. But if you have a, a, a newer translation, it'll say, according to the number of sons of God. And you get to this book that was written um, before Jesus was uh, born. It's a book Jesus is aware of, and it's a book that Jude quotes. It's Enoch. 
And they're talking about how all these gods were put in charge of all these nations. And the way they viewed it was, and this is just, let's sum it up here. The sons of God, the ones that, the ones that, uh, that rebelled against God were put in charge of these other nations, and God picked Israel. So that's why they would go into, go into Canaan and worship Baal. That's why they would go to Babylon and worship the Babylonian gods. That's why the Assyrians would come in and they would get tricked into worshiping Syrian gods. The gods traveled with their nation. They did not believe the other spiritual beings didn't exist. Otherwise, saying God is the God of all gods is a compliment. It's not a compliment. It's like me telling Rachel, you're the best wife I have. Saying that God or that Jesus was placed above the spiritual powers and authorities, that's not a compliment if they don't exist. God then works with Israel. And then Jesus shows up. And it, God's with Israel, and Baal's with Canaan, and Ra's with Egypt, and they, they, they know that these other nations have these other spirits, these other spiritual beings. And they connect them with the kings of old who started those countries, who ruled those countries. And the kings would even say, yes, we are sons of the gods. We too came from that line. And Jesus shows up and all these demons, which daimonion is just a Greek word that means lesser God, lesser spiritual being. All these demons start like saying, hey, what do you, do? What do you want with us? But if you go look, the majority of the times that happens, it's right after he steps foot in a foreign What Jesus did through his death, burial, and resurrection was in their worldview, and after the past three weeks, in mine, he, he overcame the power that divided the nations and brought them together. Now, Jesus, as Ephesians is talking about, Jesus rules over all people, the Jews and the Gentiles. God's not just the God of the Jews anymore, but he's the God of the Gentiles. And so when Jesus is exalted over the spiritual powers and authorities, he's talking about the things that divided us, the things that separated us, those things have been conquered. The nationalism that you claim whenever you say, well, this is, uh, the, the, you know, we're from this place and we worship this God. And the, Jew, the Christians would then say Jesus is far above all the rulers and the posers and the powers. Powers, that's a fun play on words. All, Jesus is far above all the things that ruled over all those places. Now, this is a much deeper subject. And we can go even further from this, but this tracks with Daniel, right? Remember Daniel prayed for 14 days? Two weeks he prayed. God, I need a word from you. 
Michael shows up. Michael says, oh, I would have been here sooner. You know, traffic. And Michael shows up and he says, I would have been here sooner, but the prince of Persia, the ruler of Persia, resisted me. So there's this like sense of Persia has its thing. And Canaan and Egypt and, and, and Babylon and Rome and Assyria and Greece have their thing that make them them and us us. And so Paul says, power of God, he exerted that power when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly realms, not just anywhere, not just anywhere in the heavenly realms, but far above all rule and authority, power and dominion and every name that is invoked, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. Then he says his intent, when he's talking about the mystery of God, like God God united us. His intent was that now through the church, the wisdom of God, the multifaceted wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms. Why would this matter if the rulers and the authorities weren't trying to keep us apart? There is evil in this world, but the number one goal of evil is not to make you sick. It's not to make you hurt. It's not to make you poor. The number one goal of evil is to divide us. Because it is united we are what God wanted us to be. It is united that we are in, in the, we, we're seen in wisdom. In God's wisdom, we are seen as this one group that does wonderful things for God, brings heaven to earth. And that is ruled, that whole kingdom is ruled. Every Jew, every Gentile, every, everyone who calls on the name of Jesus is found in that group. All who are united into his death, burial, and resurrection are found in Jesus. And there are still things that are dividing us. The third thing, third mistake we make. C.S. Lewis talked about the two. Ignore it, get obsessed with it. The third, third mistake, and this is my own addition, is we treat the rulers and the powers and the authorities and the demons and the evil spiritual forces as if they have any modicum of power compared to Jesus. We treat them, we treat them like, like there's Jesus on one side and there's devil on the Roman Revelation says that the battle, all the na all the armies of every nation showed up at Megiddo, which in, uh, in is translated Armageddon. But Megiddo was just this 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 uh, one fortified city. It was one fort on a road where all the roads met. If you owned Megiddo, you owned the world. And all the and he makes a big deal of it. All the armies came marching from every corner of the earth, and they showed up. And here comes the battle, and the battle's one verse. God, it's the lion. Sound, it's the lamb. It sounds like a lion. I heard a, a lion, and I looked, and there was a lamb. It's the lion. It's that one. 
on the throne that rules. And we can get caught up. There's one thing we get caught up in. Um, we get caught up in if we think, if we think Jesus has this battle to fight that he hasn't already won. Uh, we turn Jesus into Dora the Explorer. Anybody seen that show? I remember that show. Do you remember that? Dora the Explorer is, um, first time I saw it, my, my uh, cousin Tessa, who was real little, was watching it. And I came on, came in, and I was like, the TV's messed up. Dora was just staring. And then she did this. Dora was waiting on Tessa to say backpack. She wanted her backpack. And she was waiting on Tessa to say it. They say backpack. Backpack. She'd have to jump over a river. Dora's completely confident to jump over this river. She's just waiting on us to say jump. We act as if when we, when we pit Jesus and, the, and evil authorities and evil powers, the things that divide us, when we pit them against each other as if they're equally powerful. Or if, and even what, just, just as bad as, well, Jesus is here and those evil. Jesus is far above those guys. Jesus rules those guys. He's sitting on the throne far above the rulers and the powers and authorities. He's united people. And through the church, through the united church, we are making the world know. We're making those, those people that divide us, those rulers that divide us, we're letting them know they can't. The mystery of God that the Jews and the Gentiles are now together, that all of that is, is aside. He's, he's connecting all of that with the rulers and the powers, the things that divide us. But when we, when we think that Jesus is there and the demons are there, we act as if Jesus is still trying to defeat them. That Jesus is, won't, but Jesus can, but he's waiting for us to say the magic word. We say, jump. Jesus says, say it louder. God defeated sin, death, and division. And there is still evil forces in this world and in, in, in the heavenly realms that want to divide us. They want to come. And so a lot of times what's, what you are tempted to do is think horrible things about other people. What you're tempted to do is feel a certain way about other people. And those, those people don't want to be divided, but the spiritual forces are trying to get in there and divide us. God has conquered. And as long as we stand with this king, we have nothing to worry about. As long as we stand with Jesus, as long as the, the cross still happened, the tomb is still empty, the throne is still occupied, and then I say, well, you've got to be afraid of these guys. 
You have nothing to fear when you stand near Jesus. I, I stood out in my backyard and I fought fake ninjas most of my upbringing. Kicked and twirled and punched. My brother and sister would laugh at me, but they didn't know the danger they were in. But if a real ninja showed up in my yard, guess who I'm running to? My dad. Now, it turns out, my dad doesn't know an, a lick about karate, and we both would have been taken out. But Jesus has conquered this. We pray not to coerce Jesus to act, but to praise and thank Jesus for doing what Jesus needed to do. And as the story is told and they peek into heaven, one of the things the John, the, the revelator, saw was all nations, every tribe, every people, worshiping God, all tongues, all languages, worshiping God. We've all been united. Death has been defeated. Division has been conquered. And the spirituals and spiritual beings and the powers and the authorities in the heavenly realm have got nothing on the king of, on the king who sits in front. Bad things are going to happen. Whether you how, prayer, just pray, 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 pray. Just avoid bad things, avoid bad things, and then someday you'll die. And then we'll say, well, they prayed. And then it's not the bad things are going to happen. But the church is still together. It's because Jesus is on the throne. And if you want to join that movement, because when we ask you to come be a part of Christ, we're asking you to be a part of a victory that has been fought and won. The evil one has been overcome. Death has been defeated. Division has been defeated. And so you're joining a victory today. And everything we do as a church comes out of that victory. We don't have to... We don't have to... I'll never have the hiccups again, that's for sure. Everything that comes out of that victory is for the church. And for the church to represent the one who is on the throne to the world. Join the movement. Join the victory. Find a new king. A king who is victorious today while we stand and while we sing.